You're listening to the New World of Work podcast by the McKinsey Global Institute. We're exploring the future of work, how automation technologies, including artificial intelligence and robotics, could disrupt how we work, where we work, the skills and education we need to work, and what we can do to prepare for these transitions today. Hello, my name is Peter Gumbel, and welcome to the McKinsey Global Institute's latest podcast on the new world of work. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the income inequality and other issues related to automation, but not just to automation, the broader issues in society of people, especially in middle wage jobs, who are being affected by the global trends out there today. And to talk about them, we have two partners from the McKinsey Global Institute. We have Anu Madgavkar, who is a, a partner based in Mumbai. And we have Sri Ramaswamy, who's a partner based in Washington, DC. Thanks both for being here. I would like to start with you, Anu, because you have done a lot of work around the issue of income inequality and came out with a, a landmark report last year, Poorer Than Their Parents, it was called. I wonder if you can perhaps talk initially about what you have been seeing in terms of the pressures on people, especially uh, middle-income workers and mainly in advanced economies? So when most people think about income inequality, I think there are two predominant lenses that they apply. One is just the fact that there are a lot of people in poverty and there is an absolute issue of do you have enough? And then there is this issue about not getting better off to the same extent as richer people. That is the gap between richer and poorer people widening. Uh, and while both these are important uh, issues, we looked at yet another trend, which we think is actually even more significant. And this is the issue that for large shares of the population in the advanced economies, there has really been no positive movement or no sense of progress in terms of where their incomes have gone over the last one to two decades. So when we looked at the data across the US as well as a set of European economies, what we found is for as many as two-thirds of households uh, at the level of market income, which is what they earn mainly from wages, uh, incomes were flat or falling for two-thirds of the population. And even after taking into account transfers that they received from their governments, uh, there was still something like 25% of the population that didn't really have progress, in fact, had fallen behind. So this is a, a, a very significant trend because Apart from um, shaping living standards and access to opportunity, it also, we found, influences behaviors and attitudes about what people expect and, and, and then how they view the ability of the state or uh, how they view issues like globalization and foreign trade and immigration. A lot of these attitudes are colored by this phenomenon of just not having made progress. So what had you found to be the real reasons for this? phenomenon? Was it mainly the recession and the, the global financial crisis, or were there broader issues that were really driving this income trend? So the recession did play a role, but what we found is that it was more like the recession actually unpeeled and revealed a set of underlying trends that were driving this phenomenon. Uh, and these trends actually differed based on the countries we looked at. In some of the countries in Europe where aging is, is, is important or where the structure of the household is changing, you have smaller households and you have older people and you have fewer earning members per household. So those demographic shifts had begun to accumulate in countries like Italy, leading to this notion that household income wasn't advancing. 
In the US, demographics really weren't the issue, uh, but the issue was that people just were, you know, there was some unemployment, but it was more the issue that the share of wage income in the overall pool of whatever economic growth there was, that share of labor income was falling. And it was also the case that for many less skilled people, they were not able to either find work or they were just working fewer and fewer hours. So there wasn't enough work to go around and then there weren't enough sort of wages coming out of that work. So these two factors, I think, were most important in the US. And when you looked at the falling wage share, could you identify the extent to which automation was really driving this, or were there other factors? I think it wasn't easy to disaggregate, but what we did find is that it was highly correlated with educational levels and skill levels. And we did find that mid-skilled and lower-skilled people were the most affected. And there was, I think, enough evidence to suggest that skill-biased technology, so the fact that technological absorption and adoption by all these businesses has, over a period of time, uh, softened wages and reduced relative bargaining power of less-skilled people, that appears to have been a phenomenon that had a lot to do with this issue. Shri, just turning to you now, uh, you have just finished up a report on manufacturing in America. Are you seeing the same tendencies that Anna was seeing in her work, in, in your work, is, in terms of manufacturing? Is, is the pressure on these low-skill and middle-skill jobs uh, very intense? Yes, we do see the same sorts of pressures. Uh, one of the things that we did in the research was to pick up almost where Anu's uh, work left off, you know, talking about the, the labor share of the economy, so the, the amount of national income that goes to workers. And you do see the decline, as Anu said, you know, it's, it has accelerated in the last 10 years or so because of the recession, but these are long-run structural trends. They've been going on for 20, 25 years. And one of the things we did was to look at how much uh, different sectors of the economy contribute to that decline in workers' share of, of GDP. And we found that manufacturing accounts for about somewhere between 65 to 70 percent of that decline in labor share of GDP over the last 25 years or so. So that's a pretty significant amount, considering that manufacturing itself only employs about 9 to 10 percent of the labor in the U.S. And so, you know, what explains that amount of contribution? And it really is a factor of manufacturing in its heyday used to be a pretty significant driver of middle-income growth. And what we've seen over the last 25 years is both a reduction in the size of manufacturing in the economy and a reduction of labor within manufacturing. And so the, the issues that, that Anu was talking about in terms of the technological change and the skill-biased displacement, you do see that in the uh, in sort of the, the, the income that's going to certain types of workers within manufacturing. But we also found a, a broader issue, which was the decline of manufacturing overall uh, in the U.S. economy. Not so much as a share of the U.S. economy, because that you know, people do talk about that, you know, as, as economies industrialize, people spend more on healthcare and education, that's certainly true. But what we looked at was the absolute num amount of output in, in the U.S. manufacturing sector, and we found that in, in absolute terms, the output growth in the U.S. manufacturing sector has been slowing for, for the last 25 years. Very different from a sector like agriculture, for instance, where you've, you know, we're producing twice as much output now as we did 20 years ago. In manufacturing, we're producing almost about the same output as we did 20 years ago. It's quite interesting to note that you, you, you focus on both manufacturing and agriculture there because in our new report on automation, we make the point that in agriculture, for example, employment could drop very, very sharply. And in manufacturing more recently, it's also dropped very sharply. Um, and that these seem to be part of sort of natural economic uh, trends as, as sectors shift. 
Um, but do you think that this manufacturing decline is irreversible or is there something there that could stop uh, or at least slow the decline? So certainly in the U.S. context, one of the things that we find is, you know, the, the decline that we've seen, the absolute decline in manufacturing, I mean, this is something that um, I don't think is, is inevitable or should be accepted as inevitable or irreversible. You know, manufacturing used to be a, a major job driver, you know, 50, 60 years ago. It, it used to account for 30, 35 percent of employment in the U.S. We are not going to go back to those days, right? Manufacturing is never going to be, at least in the U.S. or in other advanced economies, it's not going to be this mass driver of, of low-skill or middle-skill jobs, you know, the way it used to be. But there are other uh, reasons that manufacturing matters to an economy, especially an economy like the United States. Uh, one of those is the fact that even though it accounts for 9 or 10% of employment, it drives 35% of productivity growth. It drives about 60% of exports. It drives about 70% of all the private sector R&D that goes on in this country, right? And so those elements, if you think about productivity or exports or R&D, those are elements that mark how competitive a nation is in the global economy. And so you see that manufacturing disproportionately contributes to those factors, right? And so that's really why we think, you know, it makes sense to look at manufacturing uh, and just look at the decline that has happened and try to understand how much of it is a sort of a natural consequence of an economy maturing and how much of it is, was borne by policy choices or other choices that were made by firms uh, and that could be reversed. And do you have a sense of the role of automation and technology more broadly in this decline? Or is it more a case that there are a whole slew of factors that are bringing this phenomenon to, to bear? So um, broadly, if you look, if you compare the U.S. manufacturing sector to uh, the manufacturing sector in countries like Germany or Korea or Japan, you find that those countries are far more automated than the U.S. is. And a lot of that is because of the industry mix. When you look within the manufacturing sector, there are really only two industries, automobiles and electronics, that tend to drive the vast majority of industrial robots. And so within those industries, certainly you find that the U.S. automobile industry is no less or no more automated than the German automobile industry. It's just that the U.S. manufacturing sector has a whole lot of other industries, food and beverage processing, chemicals, for instance, that tend to be less automated. And so as a, as a whole, the U.S. manufacturing sector is far less automated than the German or the Japanese or the Korean manufacturing sector. So I'd like to ask you both, what are the options available to help these communities, especially these low and middle wage workers, not only in the manufacturing, but more broadly in the economy? Uh, where are the new jobs? What are the skill requirements for them? What will they have to do? Uh, and what will policymakers have to do to help them manage this transition? Perhaps, Annie, we could start with you. So the thing about automation is I think uh, it's really attacking and hollowing out types of work which are very predictable, whether that is actually the so-called higher skilled knowledge work, which is predictable, which is sort of routine, office-related routine work, uh, or indeed uh, on the more physical side, you know, very predictable work, maybe in, on, on, on factory assembly lines, for example. So I think the jobs of the future at various skill categories will exist that are fundamentally less predictable, where the environment is not something that you know you can know, where human sort of judgment and cognitive ability at whatever skill level still matters. So if you think about a low-skilled person, there might actually be a lot of this kind of work in sectors such as you know construction, for example, or in sectors such as landscape gardening, for example. 
for higher skilled people, it might be a lot around uh, creative, managerial, more interaction-oriented types of work. So the jobs of the future will exist. I think the big challenge is not that the jobs won't exist. The big challenge is how do you actually make the transition uh, very fast and as sort of friction-free as possible. So there are a multitude of factors that actually make transitions quite difficult between types of jobs. People don't have the skills. People don't have the means to figure out where you know job demand lies. They don't have the ability to actually physically move from where they live to where they need to work. And therefore, working with both employers on the firm side, but also with communities, with groups, with the educational system, to make many of these uh, sort of friction-causing issues to be dealt with uh, is going to be very, very important in future. And there aren't very many precedents out there, are there, for this transition and, pe and helping people through these transitions? There are precedents and there are lessons that can be learned from smaller scale initiatives, experiments, pilots, or even sort of larger systemic policies that have been implemented. So for example, in Germany, the whole model of work sharing, which said that when work is either getting automated or falling off due to temporary demand slowdowns, uh, how do you actually take whatever work has to get done and spread it out across a large number of people so people are not out of work for any point in time, but stay at work, keep their skills alive in that context, and don't actually you know, drop out completely. The apprenticeship system that actually streamlines formal education for young people along with on-the-job training and allows them to move quite seamlessly and become part of a workforce even as they complete their formal education. And all of this uh, in the European model has actually worked well because these are almost trilateral partnerships between the government firms or the companies and then the workforce, right? So labor unions. Uh, so trilateral partnerships, cooperation, you know, working together to bring solutions to bear can actually work. Uh, and then we have seen smaller examples of things like colleges which have worked very closely with industry associations to have a, you know, much more clarity around what really are the skills in demand, say in the auto industry or anywhere else, what really are the skills in demand and to create those slivers of skill certifications that allow somebody to just you know, not spend a whole amount of time trying to acquire a whole bunch of skills which may not be relevant, but really zooming in on acquiring a marketable skill and then going to the market with that. Shri, from your perspective in manufacturing, what are the sort of actions that can be taken to help communities which have been affected by the, the layoffs and the displacement? So certainly one of the things that the research shows quite clearly is that there is sort of a divergence, almost a bifurcation in the prospects of different types of industries and different types of companies in dealing with these pressures in manufacturing. So you see, for instance, that the largest multinational firms have actually done quite well. They've posted very solid revenue growth over the last 20, 25 years. Their returns on, on capital, their profit margins tend to be quite good, actually even higher than some of their global competitors. It's the small and mid-sized firms that have really kind of borne the brunt of this issue in the US. And you see that in, in some other indicators. You see that, for instance, in the widening trade deficit in the US, even in R&D intensive industries, where you would expect a, a competitive advantage. You see it in the aging plants, in the aging equipment, in some of those smaller and mid-sized firms. And so when you think about what you can do to, to help these, these communities and these firms and the workers who work there, there are a couple of points that come up. One is, you know, as Anu was saying, this notion of the speed of the technological change 
is coinciding with a slowdown in the ability of workers and firms to move, right, or to move to new markets, to move to new geographies, to move to new skill levels. And so there's, there's a sort of mismatch between the speed at which we need to operate and the speed at which we are actually operating. And so getting to some of those structural issues, what is holding back labor mobility, what is holding back skill mobility, right, trying to address those in a large scale way. You do see a thousand flowers blooming. You see a lot of experiments, a lot of pilots going on. At some point, you have to start asking the question, what is working and how do I scale that up? And those questions at this point are not being asked. So that's certainly one aspect. And then the other aspect that I would call out is, uh, you know, one of the challenges with dealing with technological change uh, is the issue that if you have an income problem, then you have a demand problem. And so you don't have markets for new products and services, and therefore you don't have investment. And so one of the things that we have to try to figure out is in those declining communities or in those small and mid-sized firms, how do you get long-term capital to make investments in those workers or in those plants and allow those firms to start competing again to start capturing global market share? And have we seen some examples where that has been achieved? So you certainly do see, you know, when you look at the global landscape, you do see a lot of other countries where provincial governments, family investors, even retirement investors, you know, the pension funds, I mean, they do take some pretty long-term stakes in manufacturing firms. And it matters because if you're in the manufacturing sector, having a quarterly mindset or having even a three-year mindset is not really quite enough because some of these technology investments take so long, these capital upgrades take so long, uh, even to finish making the upgrade, let alone start realizing the efficiency gains from those upgrades. Right? You need to look at you know five to seven to sometimes a 10-year horizon. And so you do see examples from Asia, from parts of Europe, where you see these kind of long-term investors going in and, and starting to shore up that base. So it sounds like both of you are essentially issuing sort of a call to action. As you look forward, what would you say are the most important policy responses to this issue? Perhaps, Anu, you can start. This whole issue of inequality and its manifestation of not advancing or not making progress, it's too big a problem to have a silver bullet solution. And I think it's too bigger problem. It's, it's in a sense a problem of recent manifestation because we, we're only sort of seeing it in the last decade and therefore I think there isn't enough evidence base to say that this is what works. So we are operating uh, essentially in an environment where we have a huge problem uh, and we don't really know what works. And therefore I think uh, what is really important to do is first to take stock of a whole range of interventions. So there are interventions that will tackle the problem from the skilling perspective, which is the kind of discussion we just had. But then there are also things that uh, will improve labor mobility or things that then get into transfers, right? And says, you know, let's, let's just try and, uh, you know, make incomes grow by smarter transfers or transfers that are better targeted at people who really need them. So there is a whole spectrum. And then, of course, there is a set of interventions just to boost investment and demand, as she said, right? So there are a range of such interventions. And I think it is going to be really important for actually both policymakers and, uh, you know, the corporate sector, so to speak, uh, to think about what types of interventions they really want to try out, experiment with, you know, see what works, socialize and build more partnerships around. But it is going to be a process, I think, of trying and learning and building alliances, including with local communities. That's really going to be the only way forward. I would agree with that. I, mean, I think one of the things, you know, one of the temptations that we see is to try to fight 
battles that are 20 years old or 30 years old to try to recreate stuff that used to be 25 years ago. And the reality is, you know, the technology has moved on, the markets have moved on, and you really can't recreate what happened, what what used to be 30 years ago, right? So that's, it's much more about identifying the new opportunities. And there are opportunities out there. There is a lot of market growth. There are huge numbers of new consumers joining the global marketplace. There are amazing opportunities for innovation and productivity growth, right? It's much more about how do you get the coordination and the scale that's needed to take some of these ideas that are promising and get these coalitions, as Anu was saying, and they may be regional coalitions, they may be coalitions that cross the sector boundaries, and how do you get that, that sort of long-term orientation back into the sector? So we really need to reinvent the future. We really need to reinvent the future, yes, that's right. <laughs> Thank you very much, Anu and Tree. That was a podcast on the new world of work, the latest in our series by the McKinsey Global Institute. And the guests today were Anima Gavkar, a MGI partner based in Mumbai, and Sri Ramaswamy, who is a MGI partner based in Washington. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the new world of work by the McKinsey Global Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. To learn more about the research discussed in today's episode, visit mckinsey.com MGI or follow at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. <laughs>